It is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. The Bible tells us in the Old Testament there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. And the New Testament teaches us the same thing in Romans 12 by telling us rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And certainly these last three months have given us much to weep over and to lament. And so at this time, I'd like for you to join your hearts with me in a prayer of lament. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now with heavy hearts. We lament the separation we've endured as a church family and in a real way still experiencing as we have two services separated as a congregation and some who are justifiably still not ready to gather with us here, Lord. And we lament that separation. The loss of life, Lord, of nearly a half a million people globally and over 100,000 people here in the U.S. And as believers, we know that death is a daily second-by-second occurrence. But these deaths, due to this pandemic, Lord, we lament in this moment. Many who have died all alone and without family at their side, Lord. What a, what a tragedy that we lament the loss of jobs, and Lord, the economic turmoil for many. And not only that, Lord, but the little losses that are small. And granted, they're small. We think of our high school seniors who have been disrupted. And all of these little things, and they're big to the people enduring them. And little losses add up to great grief. And Lord, of course, the murder of George Floyd, just one of many African-American men and women whose lives have been unjustly taken. And we should never, ever forget the daily genocide of African-American babies through abortion. Lord, this needless, senseless, unjustness, unjust loss of life, it grieves our soul. And we lament injustice Racism, prejudice, hatred, wherever it exists and whenever we see it, Lord. But too often we don't see it. Too often we don't lament it. We don't realize that it even dwells in our hearts, O Lord. And we lament the honest, many honest and good police enforcers who in the midst of all of this are unjustly maligned in the midst of this chaos, combined with all this, the destruction of many small businesses and livelihoods, the chaos of looting, the anarchy of extreme forces seeking to overthrow law and order. And yet, as God's people, Lord, we, the church, have often failed to lament. We have often failed to lament these injustices, failed to listen to those suffering these injustices, failed to learn what you, O Lord, are trying to teach us. And as a consequence, Lord, we fail to love others different from ourselves in the way that you have loved us in Christ Jesus. We profess to live under the lordship of King Jesus, the one who died for rebels from every people group, 
the one who rose from the dead to call a people from every ethnicity. And yet, we who profess to be your servants, Lord, we admit we should be the most broken. We should be the most humbled, the most forgiving, the most loving, and the most bold during this moment. And yet, Lord, we confess that we have fallen short of our calling as Christ followers. I confess I have fallen short as a Christian and as a pastor to be all that I am called to be and can be in this moment. And so, Lord, we come before you and we acknowledge our need to repent. Our laughter needs to be turned to weeping. Our criticism of our culture needs to be turned more to confession of our own sin. Our fear of the future needs to be turned to a faith in you and your son. Our silence needs to be turned to a bolder witness, not about our opinions and preferences, but about the gospel proclamation of good news in your son, Jesus Christ. Our hope, Lord, needs to be turned, we admit, from politics and from anger and hate and human solutions to the good news that Jesus has already paid for the sins of the world. He has already conquered the greatest enemies of the human race, sin, Satan, and death. And he is the one who calls his greatest enemies to come to him in repentance and faith and receive abundance forgiveness. Oh, Father, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, a kingdom where peace, justice, righteousness, and joy will reign for our all eternity, a kingdom that will restore all things in a new creation, a new creation where there's no more death, no more tears, no more curse, and you, oh God, are all in all. Oh, Father God, we rejoice in you this morning. We rest in you this morning. And we long for the coming of your kingdom to this sin-cursed world. And in the meantime, Lord, as a body of believers here at LifeBridge, we recommit ourselves to rely on your grace to enable us to be your people in this moment for your glory and for the joy of all peoples. And all God's people said, Amen. As we gather here this morning for our first service back, my heart is filled with the emotions that Chris alluded to in his prayer the emotion of weeping and mourning, but also the emotion of rejoicing. The passage of scripture he alluded to in Romans chapter 12 is found in verse 15, where Paul writes, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so while we come excited to gather, we come with hearts filled with grief. 
mourning, but we also come with hearts filled with joy. And we come rejoicing. And myself, I am thankful that we can gather together here. I'm thankful that God has sustained our church over these last three months. I'm thankful that I now get to look out into an audience and see faces, familiar faces, instead of preaching to a camera. I'm certainly thankful that we can gather together in person again. And so the Bible calls us to rejoice. I'm reminded of what Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 7. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And so there is never a day in our lives, no matter what is going on, that you don't have reason to rejoice. You have reason to rejoice in God's faithfulness, God's nearness, God's provision, and His mercies that are new every morning. And so while this coronavirus while the civil unrest in our country should certainly make us weep, it should also remind us that we have reason to rejoice. And in this first Sunday back, that's what I want us to focus on in the remainder of our time together here, and specifically in the passage of First Peter chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to turn with me there. 1 Peter chapter 1, and specifically, we are going to look at verses 3 through 5. Now, just a little background to these verses here. Peter is writing to Christians, so he's writing to Christ followers like ourselves that are scattered far and wide across Asia Minor, Minor, and they are facing great difficulty. They are living under great duress or distress in their lives. And you may have come here facing perhaps your own difficulty, maybe living under your own duress. And because of it, maybe you are now feeling a little discouraged. Peter is speaking to Christians who are under great duress and persecution by the emperor Nero. And many of them feel the repercussions of this persecution against Christianity. In fact, many of them will lose their jobs. Many will be separated from family. Many will be even martyred for believing in Jesus Christ and following him. And Peter now is preparing these Christ followers for that day, for what is coming and for what they are already experiencing. And now you're probably not under the same exact kind of duress that these Christians were in Peter's day. But if you're under any kind of duress or distress, no matter what may be causing it, perhaps you feel a little hopeless and Peter's words here are just for you. Look at him with me here this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, where Peter tells us, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this bursting forth of praise by Peter is key. It's the key to this section of verses, but really it's the key to the whole book of 1 Peter. And it is the key to our lives as Christ followers. In fact, it's the key point that I want all of us to leave here with, to take home and apply in our lives, to remember, to embrace as we live under 
duress or maybe in days of difficulty. And notice it. Here's Peter's praise. It's oftentimes called the doxology, which is another word for praise. And that is this. Peter is reminding us that even in the midst of difficulty and duress, we can do what? We can praise God. And it's significant that Peter does not begin this section, the very first book here, chapter 1, by focusing on their problems, but instead he begins by praising God. Writing on 1 Peter, John Calvin says, and I quote, this is why Peter wrote this letter. The main object of this letter is to raise us above the world in order that we may be prepared and encouraged for the battle of our spiritual warfare. For this purpose, the knowledge of God's benefits is of great help. For when we appreciate their value, all other things will become worthless. In other words, if you're going to live the Christian life, if you're going to face the various difficulties in this life, then you need to know what you have been given in Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Peter does for us here. He wants us, he wants you to make sure that you know exactly what God has given to you in Christ because it makes all the difference in the world as a Christ follower. Now, let's be honest. When you have a big problem, the temptation is to be what? Is to be caught up in that problem. It dominates your mind. You, you may even start obsessing about it and thinking it's the worst thing you've ever encountered in your life. But over and over again, what does the Bible always encourage us to do? And that is to put your problems in comparison to our God. Don't deny our problems. Certainly don't deny that our problems are even great at times. But put them in perspective by comparing them to our great God. And so here's Peter talking to Christians who are facing great difficulty. They are living under great duress. And he says to them, listen, the first thing that we need to do when we wake up each and every morning is we simply need to stop and acknowledge our God. We need to praise him. And so Peter starts with praise. He starts with this doxology, which reminds us that it is always time to give praise to God and that there's never a time when we as Christians can't give praise to God, even in the midst of difficulty and duress. As one pastor writes, it's instructive that a letter written to help Christians coping with persecution would begin with a doxology. In a day when so many people respond to personal pain and suffering by questioning the existence, sovereignty, or kindness of God, isn't it interesting that Peter responds to those kinds of challenges by praising God? So the key point, listen, if you don't take anything else home, take this home with you, is it's always time to do what? To praise God. Listen, no circumstance in your life can undercut the worthiness of God to be praised, whether it's injustice in the streets or it's a virus in our world. Our circumstances will change, but our God is unchangeable. And so no matter what is happening in your life or even in our cities or across our country, our God is still worthy to be praised. And so when you face difficulty and duress, know this one truth. You can praise 
God. And here's why. Because our praise is not rooted in our circumstances, but rather it is rooted in who our God is, and that never changes. In fact, notice this in your notes coming up on the screen. Praise is grounded in God's mercy shown to you, not the circumstances surrounding you. Peter writes in verse 3, look at it again. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the very next phrase is what? According to his great mercy. Peter's praise is rooted in God's mercy shown to us, poured out to us. And so biblical praise is never rooted in our circumstances. If it were, it would go up and down, right? You would never praise God if you just watched the news all the time. All right? And so sometimes we just need to turn off the news so that we can turn up the praise. Praise is never rooted in our circumstances. Biblical praise is rooted in who God is and what God has done for us. That's what enables us to praise God in every circumstance. In other words, we might say it this way, we are redeemed. To praise. We are redeemed as Christ followers, as a body of Christ, as a body of believers, to praise God all the time. Why? According to his great mercy that he has shown to us. And then Peter goes on in these three verses here, and he tells us why. He gives us four reasons why we can rejoice and praise God even in the midst of difficulty and duress. Notice the first reason why we can praise God because of our new life, our new life in Christ. Peter writes in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Now, let us not just glance over that, but let us stop and ponder that. You can praise God because he has given you a new life. And now you are a new person in Jesus Christ. To use Paul's language in Ephesians chapter 2, you were once dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead spiritually speaking. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive in Jesus Christ. And so we are now given new life when we repent of our sin and we come to Christ in saving faith, new life is granted to us. What a wonderful gift God has given to us. Remember the story of Nicodemus? The Pharisee Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nick was a Pharisee and he is seeking answers about eternal life. And so he goes to the one who he knows has the answers. And that is none other than Jesus Christ. And Jesus tells him that unless a man is born again, he cannot, will not, shall not see the kingdom of God. Now, Nick didn't catch it at first, and so he asked the most obvious question. Jesus, can a man really go back into his mother's womb? Nick thinks he's talking about this physically, and he's not. Jesus sets him straight and tells him that just as we are born physically, so we must now be born again spiritually. And notice again how Peter puts this. He says that God is the one. God has caused us to be what? Born again. Now that's a very strong statement on behalf of Peter about God's sovereign activity on our behalf. 
the focus here is on God's initiative in giving us new life. Just as we did not cause our physical birth, that is, we didn't help in the process, we didn't decide, oh, I think I want to be born to these parents at this time, and ta-da, it happens. No. So we didn't cause our spiritual birth either. And so Peter looks at our new birth, our new life, and he declares, God did it. God did it. Listen, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something that makes us able to save ourselves. The gospel is an announcement of what God has done to save us through his son, Jesus Christ. In other words, the new birth is not something that we do. It's something that God gives to us. And I love the way John Blanchard puts it. He says, Christianity is not making a new start in life. It's receiving a new life to start with. And this new birth is a gift from God according, Peter says, to what? To God's mercy. Our new life, understand, it flows from the heart of a merciful Father. Paul reminds us of this in Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You're familiar with those verses where he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And that gift comes from a heart of a merciful father. It's not by our works. Why? Lest anyone should boast. And so we boast not in ourselves for our salvation, but rather we boast in our heavenly father. We boast in Jesus Christ. We boast in what he has done. We praise him for his mercy shown to us in Jesus Christ. A second reason why we can praise God in the midst of difficulty in dress is because of our living hope. Our living hope. Look again what Peter writes in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again, notice it, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, because we have new life in Christ, we have something the rest of the world doesn't have, but they are seeking. Hope. And when the Bible uses the word hope, listen, it's speaking of certainty, not a possibility. Why? Because our hope is based on the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And that's why it's called a living hope. Now, you may not feel like you have a lot of hope right now. Perhaps you walked in this morning and you're like, wow, I'm I'm just glad I was able to make it. But hope, a lot of, no, I don't, I don't feel that. In fact, there may be something going on in your life. And certainly, when you look at what's going on in our country with all the civil unrest, it doesn't give you a lot of hope. You, so we may not feel hopeful. But guess what? If you're a believer, you have a living hope, whether you feel it or not. Peter is saying, you may feel a little hopeless, but you are never, never, never without hope. Jesus died and rose again so that you may never be without hope. It's not just wishful thinking. You have a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, Peter wrote to believers who are suffering. 
They're in difficulty and duress. And yet they were not dashed to the ground by their troubles and trials. Why? Because God had given them now a living hope. Our living hope in Jesus Christ. We might phrase it this way. Three quick little bullet points here. Notice this in your notes. Our hope is anchored in the past. Why? Because Jesus rose again. Our hope remains in the present. Why? Because Jesus is alive today. And then our hope is completed in the future. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. He is returning. And we bank on that. We look forward to that. And that's the message that we ought to shout from the rooftops. We ought to shout in our homes to one another. Life may be hard, but there's hope in Jesus Christ. That's another reason why we can praise God even in the midst of difficulty and duress. But Peter doesn't stop with our living hope in Christ. He gives another reason why you can praise God no matter what the circumstances may be. And that is number three, praise God because of our guaranteed inheritance. Guaranteed inheritance. Peter goes on to describe our salvation in terms of an inheritance. So we might think of it in this way. Locked up in the bank vault of heaven and guarded against every intruder who might try to take it from us. In verse 4, Peter says, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So we can praise God now in the midst of hard times because as strangers and sojourners in this world, by the way, that's the term that Peter uses in the book of 1 Peter to identify those who claim to be Christ followers. In other words, this home, this earth is not our permanent home. It's a temporary home. We're just passing through. And so he likens us to strangers or aliens in this world. We have, Peter says, to those of us who are Christ followers, we have a guaranteed inheritance waiting for us in heaven. In other words, it's guarded by the surveillance of God Almighty. Now think about an inheritance for a moment. An inheritance is almost always, in fact, the very nature of the word, definition, it is a gift. And that is, because it's a gift, you can't earn an inheritance. Likewise, our inheritance has been given to us by God the Father. Now, sometimes when parents die and leave an inheritance, what do the children do? They blow it, but before they blow it, they fight over it. All right? They fight over it, then they blow it. As if they did something to earn that inheritance. I oftentimes, sometimes, yeah, a few years back, you don't see it so often now, the bumper sticker that you sometimes would see on motorhomes that says, we're spending our children's inheritance. Well, this is one inheritance your parents can't spend. For that, we say hallelujah, right? And then Peter actually describes our inheritance with three different words. Notice this quickly here. The first word, he says, it's imperishable. It means it's not able to be destroyed. That is our inheritance. Nothing can ruin our inheritance because it is free from death and decay. It can never perish. Any earthly inheritance is subject to both decay and death, but our heavenly inheritance is imperishable. It can't be destroyed. For example, when Tyler graduated, which is now four years ago, I gave him my my old car. I said, Tyler, here's your graduation present. This is yours. 
Well, four years later, he's having problems with that car. <laughs> it doesn't look quite as nice anymore. Why? Because it's, you know, it's temporary. It's not guaranteed by anything. Unlike our spiritual inheritance here, it's imperishable. It means it's not able to be destroyed. And then a second term Peter uses, it's undefiled, our inheritance. It means it's not polluted or stained. And so nothing can stain or cheapen our inheritance in any way because it is free from moral impurity and uncleanness. It can never lose its luster and beauty. It will never become stained or filthy. And then the last word that Peter uses to describe our inheritance in Jesus Christ is unfading and it simply means it's not subject to decay our inheritance will never fade away it will never grow old it will never wear out because it's free from the ravages of time in other words it's permanent I like that word permanent because so many things in our life are not permanent but our inheritance is permanent because it's eternal and again, I'm just I'm reminded of my other son, Jack. The spring, actually, I guess it was the wintertime. He got a little perm in his hair, curled up. It lasted all of four weeks. And then it went, whoop. You know, it's not permanent. But this, Peter says, our inheritance is permanent. It will not fade away. It's eternal. And so these three words, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, they picture our inheritance as death-proof, sin-proof, and time-proof, and that is something to praise God about. But wait, it gets better. Don't miss this part of it. Peter says that this inheritance is, and notice the phrasing he uses, he says it's kept in heaven for you. Now that word kept is a great little word. It can also be translated as reserved, and it means to watch over to take care of, to guard against loss or injury by keeping an eye on that which is being guarded. And in this case, it's referring to God Almighty as the one who is keeping an eye on your inheritance in Christ. In other words, He is the one who keeps it safe. God is the one who reserves it for us in heaven. You ever bought reserved seats at the K? Royals, go watch a Royals game. You got reserved seats, you got your tickets. And when you get there, you're like, somebody's in my seat. What are they doing sitting in my seat? Do they not know where their sick seats are? And so you, what do you do? You pull out your tickets and you hold it in front of their face and go, listen, this is, these are my seats. See, I got a ticket here that says reserved seating right here. Seat one, two, aisle section here at the K. On this date, this proves these are my seats, not your seats. Well, you politely leave. Shoo. Most of the time, that's just a little irritating when that happens. Sometimes it's awkward. And at worst, it can maybe lead to a confrontation because they don't want to leave. Well, listen, that's not going to happen when we get to heaven. Our inheritance is guaranteed. God is not going to look at you like now. What did you say your name was? I kind of forgot about that. No. Listen, God gives us a reason to praise him, especially in this living, chaotic, hostile world, because we have a guaranteed inheritance. The last reason Peter gives why we can praise God is we can praise God because of our divine protection. 
our divine protection. Peter assures us that we will certainly receive our inheritance. And the reason for this confidence is found in verse 5. Where Peter writes, Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, the word guarded is a military term. And it means just what you would think it means. To guard, to protect, to keep. And the verb tense means that we are constantly being guarded by God. And so Peter, by this very truth now, is assuring us that nobody can steal your salvation from you. Nobody can snatch you out of the hands of God the Father. The idea is that your salvation is protected just as a military post is protected by soldiers. And so God sets up a sort of military guard in our hearts so no one can interfere with our salvation. You are saved by His grace and now you are guarded by His power. And once God has placed you in His heavenly eternal family and done so by a new birth... No one can cause you to lose your salvation, to lose your relationship with him. You ask, how is that possible? Well, Peter tells us that we are protected, and notice the phrase, the words he uses, by God's power through faith. Does this mean I'm protected and shielded from suffering and trials? I'm protected and shielded from difficulty and duress? Is that what Peter's saying? Woohoo! Sorry to burst your bubble. No. This protection does not mean we are shielded from suffering and trials in this life. In fact, far from it. But it does mean when we are assaulted with trials and suffering, God will guard us by his power all the way to the end when he brings us home to glory. That's God's part. But understand, listen, we, we have a part to play in this as well. The word faith here that Peter uses means we have an obligation to continue to trust God all through this. And so this also means that when we are assaulted with trials, we will persevere in those trials. How? Through faith to the end, proving that we really are born again. That's our part. We are saved by God's grace through faith. And now our salvation, listen to me, Peter says, it will be completed by God's power through faith. So mark it down. You can count on God to be faithful to protect you as his chosen son or daughter. There is no way we will be lost in the process of suffering and trials. There's nothing in this world that can threaten God's ultimate protection over our lives. Our salvation is divinely protected. It is divinely guaranteed. And the question is, will you persevere to the end? By continuing to trust God in the midst of difficulty and duress. Now, perhaps you're thinking, man, this sounds really good, Bruce. But I'm just not sure that I have enough faith to cling to God and to persevere in the midst of hard times. Listen, this is where it gets really good. Understand, 
even our faith is a gift of God. God will preserve our faith through suffering and trials. God will fortify believers in Christ so that they will persist in faith and hope until the day we obtain our inheritance. That's why we can praise God even in the midst of difficulty and duress. That's how great our salvation is. And that's what Peter is bringing out in this very beginning of the book. To these Christians who are under great difficulty, under great duress, which, let's be honest, some of us, if not all of us, are the same way. We face difficulty and we live under duress. Ask Christ's followers. It is only going to get worse as the end draws near. But we have this great salvation in Jesus Christ. Listen, we have new life in Christ. We have a living hope in Christ. We have a guaranteed inheritance in Christ. And we have a divine protection in Jesus Christ. Do you want to know how to live in this chaotic world in the midst of such civil unrest? It's right here. This is the secret. This is the secret. Start each day praising God for his great mercy shown to you in your great salvation. Listen, if Peter were standing here in my place right now before you, here's what he would say to all of us this morning. Peter would say, listen, be prepared. Hard times are coming. In fact, they are already here. And some of you are in the midst of those difficulties and living in duress. And then Peter would remind us, he would say, remember what God has done for you, though. He caused you to be born again. He has given you a living hope, and your future is eternally secure because it rests on God himself. And so start each day praising God for his great mercy that is shown to you in your great salvation. Because no matter what difficulty you're facing, no matter what duress you are living under, Peter would say, you can join me in praising God. Join me in saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's Peter's praise. My question to you is, is it your praise this morning? Do you start each day with a simple praise to God? It's the secret to living in this chaotic world of ours. Start your day with praise. You have much to praise him for in our great salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Oh, we thank you and we praise you that we can once again gather together for worship. Thank you for this time in your word. And reminding us that we always have reasons to rejoice. Receive our praise even now as we acknowledge your great mercy at work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray.